Uh, please uh, take your seats, and if you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 and verses 20 to 23. So in the church Bibles, that's page 949. And in the large print Bibles, page 1475. Uh, and for those of you that have been struggling each week to find Haggai, this is the, the last week uh, that you have to be searching for it. Uh, although I do hope that you will come to uh, read Haggai regularly. So I'm going to read verses uh, 20 to 23. The words of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is God's word. And I've called this sermon, I will, I will, referring to the amount of times that God says those words in the few verses that we read. Uh, but it's been a real joy uh, to spend this last month uh, looking at this little book of Haggai. Uh, and I think God has been speaking to us as a church very powerfully through uh, this little book. In fact, I'm quite sad that we're leaving it behind. It's like you know, saying goodbye to an old friend and hopefully we'll come back another time and, and see him later. Uh, although if you're reading uh, your Bibles through in a year, like I'm doing this year, um, I will come to Haggai again uh, probably in about a month's time, so I'll get to see him again. Uh, but over these last weeks, uh, God has been powerfully uh, speaking to us as a church. Uh, you may remember, just to get us to where we are in Haggai, in the first week, uh, we looked at how we make excuses for not serving God. Uh, and we were told by Haggai, pack up those excuses, renounce them, put them behind you. We were challenged the week after to obey the kingdom call to serve God in the church. And as a result of renouncing excuses and the call to serve in the church, uh, many people in our church uh, volunteered to serve in many different ways, which was a wonderful response uh, to those sermons that challenged us to, to, to serve the Lord. Now, in Haggai's time, that, that service of the Lord was building uh, the temple. And for us, it's the work of building the church, which God is doing through his people. And we were encouraged a couple of weeks ago in the third sermon, by the, we were encouraged by the wonderful promises of both the presence of God with us and of the future glory 
that is coming to those who are God's people. That we can keep going in service because we know both God is with us and it will always be worth serving Jesus. And then last week, Haggai showed us how we will be fruitful in God's kingdom as we step out in obedience to him. But we come this morning to the final verses, to the final sermon in Haggai. And there is one final encouragement that Haggai wants to give his people. And the encouragement is this. How can we be sure as God's people that the things that God has promised us will happen? How can we know that the plan he has will be fulfilled even when it appears to be failing? How can we know that this puny little temple, that in comparison to the world around us just seems insignificant and small, will turn out to be the great glorious temple that God has promised? How can we know? Well, here's the encouragement for us this morning. We can be sure of success because the plans and purposes of God are not dependent on us, but they are dependent on God himself. God says, I will. I will. Notice in these four verses that the phrase, I will, appears four times, and we also have the phrases, I am going, and I have chosen. So in these final verses, we see that it's all about what God is going to do. The work of the kingdom of God is not dependent on anyone except God himself. And that is both humbling for those of us who think that the kingdom of God does depend on us, and it's comforting for those who feel that but feel like, well, I just can't do this. No, you can't, but God can and will through you. The work of God's kingdom, the work of building the church is fully dependent on God himself and on him fulfilling his promises to us through Jesus Christ. God says, I will. And because of that, we know that we are on the right side when we line up with him. And so in this passage, God is going to bring some reminders to us of how he has worked in the past to show us how we can be sure he will work in the future. And in doing so, shows us that he will make good on the promises he makes to us as God's people, even when things really look bad. And sometimes they do, don't they? Sometimes in our lives, things can look bad for us personally. Sometimes in the life of a church, things can look difficult and hard. Sometimes as we serve God, things seem to go wrong. But we can be sure, even in those times, that God says, I will. He will fulfill his promises. Well, in verse 20, uh, tw in verse 20 we see that it is the, the same day as the previous message. It's the 24th day of the second month. Uh, by the way, I forgot to say last week, um, someone, uh, a brother kindly pointed out to me, did you know last week was the 24th day of the ninth month? And it was the same day I was preaching the sermon. So I missed the trick in not mentioning that. 
Um, so well, that was the actual day last week, which was kind of cool. But this week isn't that day, so it's not that cool anymore. But anyway, uh, but it's the same day here as the previous sermon he gives. It's the 24th day of the second month, or the, it's the 18th of December, uh, the day when the foundation-laying ceremony was uh, remembered. And on this day, the, the work of the temple looked insignificant, with the world around them looking so powerful. Everything around them looked big and strong and powerful. The kingdom of God looked tiny and insignificant in comparison. And Zerubbabel was the leader of the people in this rebuilding effort. And the message from Haggai comes specifically, notice in verse 20, uh, 21, to Zerubbabel. So he's referred to as the governor of Judah. He's the leader of the people. And so first of all, as the leader of the people and the project, he needs encouragement. The work was hard, it was discouraging, and this message would help him. But there is more than that, because in verse 23, Zerubbabel, notice, is referred to as son of Shealtiel. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, Hewa pointed out to me that in their culture, which is much closer to where the Bible was based, uh, people are always referred to, men are always referred to as the son of their father. And that's because to be the son of someone is, is part of your identity. It's significant for them. And here in this passage, the son of Shealtiel means that Zerubbabel is from the line of King David. And that is very significant. We'll see that he is a man who is, as in the line of David, was part of God's promises being fulfilled through that line. We'll see that a little bit later. But there are two parts to this message that Haggai brings to Zerubbabel. Two future commitments from God that he says, I will do. God says, I will, number one, overthrow the kingdoms of this world. And number two, I will rule through my chosen servant. So first of all then, God says that he will overthrow the kingdoms of this world. Uh, in verse 21, the phrase, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, should be familiar to us because we heard them in verses 6 and 7 of the same chapter. You may remember that shaking is the language of theophany. It is the language of an appearance of God, of, of divine intervention. When God shows up, things begin to shake. For example, when he appeared on Mount Sinai. And the shaking of the heavens and the earth means that from heaven, God is moving and that movement impacts the earth. And the result of the shaking or this divine intervention is found in verse 22. What we see in this verse are words and images that bring to mind what God has done in the past. Historical moments when God acted on behalf of his people. First of all, we have this word, overturn or overthrow. Uh, the NIV has two words here, but the Hebrew word is one word, hafak, and it means the same thing. 
Uh, a way to illustrate what this word means is to think of a snow globe. Now, I've never understood the uh, appeal of a, of a snow globe. So if you're thinking about what to get me for Christmas this year, do not get me a snow globe. I, think they're, I just think they're, they're just pointless and rubbish, but they are made to illustrate this Hebrew word. So uh, when you have a snow globe, what do you do with it? You shake the snow globe and everything in the snow globe starts to move around and swirl and be overturned, isn't it? And then it all kind of settles back down at the end. That's what this word means in the Hebrew. It's like a snow globe where you shake it up, everything's overturned and moved around. That's what it means when it says, I'm going to overturn. So when God overthrows or overturns, he, he shakes things up. And unlike what happens in a snow globe, because they're all pretty and lovely, what happens with God is things are destroyed, or rather things are put right. So justice comes, for example. And the meaning is understood when we see how this word overturn, this shaking, is used in the Old Testament. And there are two specific times that this Hebrew word is used that I want to show you, where God used it to, to overthrow or overturn foreign powers. Uh, the first is in, in Genesis 19. And we read it when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So, it says, The Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus, he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the overthrowing of Sodom and Gomorrah was used as a model example of what happens to nations that in their wickedness reject the rule of our good God. And the other time that Hafak is used in this way is in Jonah. Jonah is preaching in Nineveh, the capital of the mighty and very wicked Assyrian Empire, and he says this, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. You see the word there? Overthrown. Now Nineveh, in Jonah, repented and was not overthrown. It's like God, he left the snow globe and didn't shake it. And judgment from God then can be avoided if we respond to the call to repent. But the point is that this word overthrow, the Hebrew hafak, is, is in the minds of God's people, reminding them of Sodom and Gomorrah in particular, and probably Nineveh as well. It was what God had done in the past to foreign nations who reject him. But notice what will be overthrown in verse uh, 22. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. Uh, thrones speak of authoritative rule and this rule is, is powerful. Uh, Persia, in particular at this time, was a, a powerful kingdom ruling over tiny Judah. And today, the church of Jesus Christ can seem small and insignificant compared to the mighty thrones in the world around us. But notice how God says in that verse, I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall each by the sword of his brother. 
So you've got these powerful kingdoms that God will overthrow, but he's going to overthrow chariots, drivers, horses, riders. Now, just as the overturning of royal thrones and foreign kingdoms harked back to Sodom and Gomorrah and Nineveh, this overthrowing harks back to another episode where God acts on behalf of his people. Chariots and drivers refer to military power, but the phrase specifically refers to the exodus from the kingdom, the mighty power, of Egypt. You see, when Israel crossed the Red Sea and Egypt was destroyed, Israel began to sing of their victory. And Exodus 14 verse 28 tells us what happened. It says, The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. And then in the song in chapter 15, they sing, and I don't know the tune, so I'm just going to read you the words. Uh, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. So do you see there how the words in Haggai hark back to this event and this song in Exodus. God has a history of delivering his people, bringing them into the promised land, and overthrowing or overturning chariots and their drivers. Furthermore, armies falling by the sword of their brother brings other historical memories to mind. In Judges 7, God had a plan to defeat the Midianites. And the plan seemed crazy. Gideon was told to make his army smaller to just 300 men to fight the innumerable Midianite army. But the plan of God worked. Listen to how Midian was defeated. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding their right hands, the trumpets they were to blow they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position round the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Do you see what was happening? How It's what Haggai said is going to happen again, where each falls by the sword of their, of their brother. That happened to the Midianites. Similarly, the Lord delivered Judah in the days of King Hezekiah by overthrowing Sennacherib, the king of Assyrians, in a similar way. This is what happened. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead, dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. So the point here being the Lord did this, this killing of the army. But then one day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his God, his sons, Adramalek and Sharazar, killed him with the sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him as king. All these are examples of people falling by the sword of their brother, their fellow soldiers, their sons, and it's done by the hand of the Lord. Sodom, Gomorrah, Nineveh, Midian, Sennacherib, all shook their fists against God. All said, we can defeat God. All said, we can destroy God's people. 
all were overthrown. All were overturned. All were in this little snow globe that God just picked up and did that with. It was nothing to God. And God can do it and will do it again. All of the words in, the, in verse 22 of Haggai are putting images in, is, in, in, in the head of God's people that show that what God has done in the past, God will do again. Uh, many of you know that I enjoy uh, playing squash. And I've played for a number of years. And there are uh, a couple of players who I play with very regularly. A couple of them, even um, one of them in particular, I play every single week. And all of our games that we play are incredibly tight, close games. And the reason they're so tight is because we know each other's game. So when um, I take a, a shot, I know what my opponent there is going to do. Why? Because I've seen him do it every week for years. I know his habits on the court, which kind of sometimes makes the games a bit boring, but it does give you a good workout because you kind of try and play against what they're doing. But you know what's going to happen. Similarly, on a Wednesday night of football, the guys I play with know what's going to happen when I shoot. <laughs> Usually it's going to go wide of the goal. But the point being that what happens in the, the past, the habits on the court in squash, my opponent knows. And in our lives, we're on kind of the God's court in his world. And we can know that we can trust what God is going to do because he has his habits. He judges sin. He has mercy. He builds a people. He delivers them and so on. We can know what God is going to do. We can trust he will do what he says because he's done it over and over and over again, you see? And in terms of him overturning the wicked nations and peoples of this world who shake their fist against him, we can know God has played that shot many, many times before. This is where Psalm 2, which Morris read for us, is, is so helpful. This is where we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, they rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. So the, you've got this image of, of these kingdoms of the world shaking their fists at God. But what does it say? The one enthroned in Heaven laughs. Why is he laughing? Because there's this like ant colony rising up against, um, it's like an ant colony rising up against the man in his garden and saying, right, we're going to take down this house. It's ridiculous. If, the, if, you, if you could hear an ant saying that, you'd probably laugh, wouldn't you? Well, God is, is enthroned in the heavens. He's, he's looking down, what are they doing? Shaking their fist at me. He scoffs at them, he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath. Because nobody can shake their fist at God and say they're going to overthrow him. This is God who is the king, who is the Lord Almighty. No one's going to come and overturn him. 
And so we can feel as God's people sometimes that the powerful forces of this world are winning. In some places, God's people are killed for believing in Jesus. We suffer here from a kind of cultural domination that tries to overturn the good rule of God in his word. Sin and depravity and injustice seem to abound everywhere. Despots in our world do so much evil and the church can seem so small and so insignificant. How can we know God's plan will succeed? We've got to remember history, folks. Kingdoms always rise. Kingdoms always fall. The Lord reigns forever. Jesus, as we'll see towards the end of this sermon, is always alive. He is always risen. He is always at the right hand of the Father ruling. He reigns forever. Nobody is going to overturn the plan of God. Nothing. Nobody. No ruler. No kingdom. God is securely enthroned forever and has a history of shaking up nations because to God, they are just in a snow globe. Just one example of this. Um, in, in China, during the Cultural Revolution there, Christianity was supposed to be snuffed out by the authorities. But when that, rev, that, that revolution ended... It was found there were millions of Christians in China. And there are probably more Christians there now than anywhere else in the world. You cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Nobody will. And so when we are following Jesus in his church, we are on the victory side. Always. The only reason that God has delayed this final shaking is because as much as his habit is to overturn wickedness and, uh, and the, the kingdoms of this world, he also is inclined to mercy. And he offers people, you included, the chance of repentance. And that's the appeal I give to all those who are currently rejecting God. You may try and break off the shackles. You may shake your fist at him. But the day is coming when you will face him, when you will be shaken. And unless you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from God's wrath, you will face that yourself. So I urge you, repent and turn to King Jesus. So first of all, we can know that God's promise will be fulfilled because he's done it before. He will again overthrow the kingdoms of this world. But secondly we see that God will rule through my chosen servant. Now, when it says, when I say my chosen servant, it's not mine, it's God's. Uh, God says to Zerubbabel that he is my servant. And in verse 23, we see lots of amazing truth compacted into one small verse. So we'll break it down into its parts and then put it together again. It begins with, on that day. Uh, that's referring to the day when God will shake the heavens and the earth. Uh, Hebrews 12 tells us that there is one more shaking that's coming. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. That's what's being referred to, the day when the Lord Jesus returns. On that day, I will take you. Now, when God takes a person or a group, it's for a specific purpose, so in speaking of Israel, Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 says, 
I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Uh, Specifically important here, though, is how God spoke to King David. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. So so on on that day, on the final shaking, the Lord will take Zerubbabel. Then we come to this phrase, my servant. Now this again was a a title used of King David, as well as numerous other people, uh, designated by God for a a special task that he has for them. And this is speaking of Zerubbabel as a servant like David. And it's confirmed by referring to him as the son of Shealtiel, who comes from the line of David. So the Lord is going to take Zerubbabel, his servant, and do what? We'll look again at verse 23. He says, I will make you like my signet ring. Now, a signet ring was used by a ruler either on their finger or around their neck. And it was a sign of authority, like a signature. So they would stamp stamp their letters with the image on their signet ring. If a document was sealed with the image of the king's signet ring, then you know that the message was from the king. But to be like the signet ring meant that you had an authority. But it also meant that you had a security. The ring was never taken off. And it meant that you had a a beauty because the ring was precious to the king. Precious to the one wearing it. So there was an authority, there was a security, and there was a beauty to being like a signet ring. And the kings of Israel from King David onwards were supposed to be God's servants or God's representatives who spoke in his name like a signet ring. So the kings of Israel were like a signet ring in that they were, they were God's special rulers who spoke with God's authority, secure on David's throne and precious to God. But despite some kings of Israel from David being good, they had failed. They had rejected God. They had led God's people into idolatry. And in the end, Jeremiah says this about one of the final kings of Israel. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. Do you see the signet ring there? The kings of Israel were removed. They were taken off. They no longer ruled in his name. God, he took the signet ring off. That meant that they were no longer his representatives. They no longer had his authority. They no longer were secure. They no longer were precious to him in that way. And the people went into exile and there was no king on the throne even when the people returned. Zerubbabel was the descendant of David. He was next in line to the throne if there was one. But he wasn't the king. But what we read here is a promise 
of two things, a rehearsal and a reversal. There's a rehearsal of the promise God made to King David. So in 2 Samuel 7, King David wanted to build God a temple, a house. But God said to David, I'm going to build you a house. Listen to what God says to David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And here is Zerubbabel, we get a a rehearsal of that. Here is King Zerubbabel building God's house, God's temple again. But God rehearses the conversation with David and reminds him that he will be a king, like a signet ring again. Having that security on that throne. But as well as a rehearsal of what was said to King David, there is a reversal. Because in Jeremiah, the signet ring was, was taken off. But here, for Zerubbabel, God puts the signet ring back on again. You see? And so there is an authoritative representative of God's people again. One who can lead them to fulfill God's plan. In this case, building the temple. And the security and the beauty is also shown in the final words. Look at the end of verse 23. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So Zerubbabel was chosen by God to fulfill the task, giving him a security and that beauty of being precious to God. But there is more to this verse. For Zerubbabel did not become the king of Israel. He did complete the work of building the temple. Ezra chapter 6 tells us that on the 12th of March, 516 BC, 20 years after it had begun, and about four and a half years after this sermon, the work of the temple was finished. But Zerubbabel died. Judah was still a tiny province in the great Persian Empire. There was a greater signet ring to come. There was another from the line of David, another from the line of Zerubbabel, and his name is Jesus. In Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is what he says. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and then that descent continues all the way down to Joseph, the father who adopted Jesus. And in Luke chapter 3, we see that Zerubbabel was also an ancestor of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so Jesus, through Mary and Joseph, is the rightful king of Israel. And Jesus was called my servant. Uh, in Isaiah specifically, who speaks of the servant of the Lord, Jesus quotes from Isaiah in the temple when he appears there. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, in other words, chosen me as his servant, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the prisoner 
oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture, this scripture that speaks of God's servant, proclaiming God's message, doing God's will, representing God to the people, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus here is the chosen servant of God, speaking with authority as God's signet ring. In fact, we read of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God. A signet ring would have the image that represents the king. Well, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of his being. He is God made flesh. He is a living, breathing signet ring of God to the people. And we see Jesus with God's authority, don't we? As he teaches, as he heals the sick, as he raises the dead, as he calms the storm, as he casts out demons and so on. Jesus is the image of God. He represents God to us. But it all seemed to go wrong. Because on the cross, when Jesus was crucified by his enemies and abandoned by God, he began to look a bit like Jehoiachin. Cast off, the signet ring taken off. In Luke chapter 3, verse, uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 25, we read that the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. At that point, it just looked like it had all gone wrong. Another failure. God's plan not working. The rulers shaking their fists at God and appear to be winning, but that was not the end of the story, was it? For just as God's plan seemed like a failure, Jesus rises from the dead. He conquers sin. He conquers death for his people, and he reigns forevermore. God's plan did not fail, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the event the singular moment in history that we can look back on and know for sure that when God says, I will, he will do it. Because Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead, we can know that the rule and reign of God will last forever. And us as his people will be with him forever. Paul said in Acts 17 verse 31, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. How can we know that he will do that? He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so today, as God's people, we are his signet ring. We are his ambassadors, his servants, his chosen people. Like a signet ring, we have the authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Like the signet ring, we are secure on the finger of God. We are graven into his hands. We shall never be removed. And like the signet ring, we are precious to God, chosen by him to be his people. Isn't that wonderful? So we have God's authority resting on us in Christ. We are secure because Jesus is always risen. His sacrifice always stands we are always forgiven, we are secure in the family of God, and we are precious to him. There is a beauty to the people of God 
We may not look much, but to God we are beautiful. And so we live our lives submitting to Jesus Christ, whom we know to be God's king. God's plans will be fulfilled even when, when all seems lost. The end of Psalm 2 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Keep following Jesus. Keep taking refuge in him. He forgives all the sins of all those who have shaken their fists at him. He forgives all the sins of all those who seek his forgiveness based on the sacrifice he made on the cross for our sins. He gives us life. He is a good king. He is always worthy of our praise. And he is our king. And he is our father. And maybe some here this morning are struggling with doubt. Maybe some here are struggling because life seems to be falling apart. Maybe some are here wondering, will God really do all those wonderful things that he promised? Will he really show us and give us that future glory that we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't understand why God is allowing things to happen that he is allowing to happen. Take heart, dear ones. God is victorious. Christ is risen. He will fulfill the plans he has for us. How can we know that God's good plans for us will be fulfilled? Because he's done it before. And ultimately, he has done it on the cross and in his resurrection. And he will do it again. I will, says the Lord Almighty. How do we know that God's plans will be fulfilled? How do we know that we will make it to glory? I will, says the Lord Almighty. I will. Trust him. He will do it. He will. Well, I'm going to stop there. Uh, what we're going to do now is um, we're going to sing together before we come to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a wonderful place that we can come to because it reminds us physically of what God did physically, the, 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 the great thing he did on the cross that secures our forgiveness and eternal life. And our final song speaks how we are now God's representatives in our world. We are his signet ring because God called us himself before our birth to bring him glory on this earth. And it was done by grace. So we're going to stand and sing Grace Unmeasured. And then after we've sung, we'll take our seats and we will uh, participate together in the Lord's Supper. So let's stand as we sing together.